the Spanish terrorists on my couch. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Well, yes, today we're going to be putting the Spanish terrorists on my couch. Uh, by Spanish, I mean the ones who committed the attacks in Spain. Most of them were of Moroccan descent. Uh, and we're going to be looking at what went wrong. <laughs> Obviously a lot. Now, we're talking about 12 terrorists, um, so it's a little crowded on my couch. But we're going to be particularly looking at the imam, who was the mastermind of this attack and a very interesting character. So let me first give you a little bit of a recount, recap, since I'm sure you heard some, something about it, uh, a recap of actually what happened, and then we'll look at the, at the individual terrorists involved. So the first thing that happened, and, and this is very significant because if the police and the authorities had recognized the significance of the first incident, they might well have prevented the second incident, which is the one that we have heard most about, the attack on La Rambla in Barcelona, the uh, shopping street um, which, in which uh, there were 13 killed and 130 at least were injured. But the night before is really what we need to look at. Um, there was an explosion that occurred in a house in the town of Alcanar, and it killed two people. One of them was this imam that I'm going to be telling you about, and one of them was um, someone, one of the terrorists who he um, had recruited to be part of this cell. Now, uh, the imam was 40 years old, and he's the one he should have known better, but he accidentally caused the explosion. In the home, there were over 120 gas canisters, and um, the plan was they were going to be making a large bomb or three smaller bombs, and they were going to be putting them in three vans that they had rented, and they were going to take them to monuments, uh, specific iconic sites in Spain. Uh, and they were wanted to blow the, them up. And particularly this imam, it is said, wanted to blow up um, a particular site um, and, and die, you know, as, as, as a suicide bomber. He wanted to be the star of this attack. Now, um, it has been only recently since then, uh, and this attack, the... Um, the main attack in Barcelona occurred on August 17th of this year. And um, the, so the night before was when the explosion happened in the house. And um, what just recently happened is that, that, you know, they're still, of course, investigating the rubble of the house where the explosion occurred. And they have found a suicide vest that was packed with viable explosives. So, in other words, um, you know, if they had found that on the first night when the explosion occurred, um, they might well have been more uh, attentive to what was going to happen next. I mean, more clued into the fact that this, there was a plot afoot. 
So, um, you know, because originally they described it and dismissed it as an accidental gas explosion, which is still rather weird since there were so many canisters of explosives, 120. And it turns out that these gas canisters contained a gas that is typically used in ISIS attacks. So again, um, you know, you know what? We could say that maybe Spain was a little bit. Uh, I mean, there were, of course, organizations um, who were set to look for terrorist plots, and you know, in the sense, we can attribute the fact that there haven't been any since the 2004 uh, big attack uh, in Madrid on the trains. So we can give them credit for that. But perhaps there you know, has been a little bit of complacency setting in because, um, because some things were missed. So um, after this attack, so the attack in, in Barcelona, the on La Rambla killed 13 people, injured over 130. The driver of the attack there, it was actually really interesting. The, the driver, um, was uh, was named Yunus Abuya Yaakov, Abu Yaakov, and um, he was driving the van that hit the people in Barcelona. And what is really interesting is that the reason why the van stopped without hitting more people is because uh, the impacts that it had received as it was zigzagging through the street, hitting people. Um, the impacts caused the airbag in the car to inflate and the driver protection system automatically shut down the electrical system in the van and it caused the van to stop. Otherwise, there would have been far more people killed and injured. So in this, you know, confusion, obviously, after this zigzagging um, death spree, uh, the driver was able to get out of the car and run away. He went to the center of the city where he hijacked a car and stabbed and killed the driver and then used the car to get away. Ultimately, he was caught and killed, but um, that is how he was able to get away. In the meantime, nine hours later, approximately, after the Barcelona attack, five men of the same terrorist cell drove over pedestrians in a nearby town of Cambrils. And in that attack, they killed one woman and they injured six others. And all five of the attackers in that car were shot by police and killed. Um, so what, what is also one of the fascinating things is that uh, the, even though the imam was killed in this first night explosion, the 12, um, the, the rest of the cell were so de dedicated to him, devoted to him, and so um, radicalized by him, so convinced by him that what they're doing is so important and, that, and they should do it, that they continued the attack despite not having him around to continue leading them. Now, of course, since the, their gas canisters exploded, they weren't able to do explosions uh, as part of their attacks, 
but so they, you know, use the cars as uh, ramming attacks instead, or, you know, just that instead of uh, the addition of the explosions that they were planning. So, um, let, let me uh, talk about the imam now, and then I'll, I'll get to some of the other, um, some of the other, the other people in the terrorist cell. Um, I do want to say that there were 12 members in the cell, eight of whom are by now are dead. Four of them are in police custody. And, um, and that's the four who are in police custody have been able to tell the police some of the things that were planning. Of course, some of them, some of them denied, no, two of them denied knowing the imam. They had nothing to do with them. Uh, I mean, of course, the whole thing is, is, you know, as a psychiatrist and the terrorist therapist, you know, I, I put these people, these terrorists on my couch so that we can learn something from it and hopefully prevent, be better at preventing future attacks. But of course, the overall, you know, regardless of how, of how these things happened, how they wound up in the cell and so on. I mean, of course, overall, the message is that this is just a tragedy, another, yet another tragedy, another tragic terror attack, and another call to um, have these attacks stopped, to stop how, how urgent it is to stop terrorists in their tracks. So now let's look at this uh, imam. His name is Abdelbaki Esadi, and he is described as someone who sometimes wore jeans and dressed like a hipster. He only had a short beard. <laughs> um, he was he was apparently he was a very good con artist, is what he was, um, because he was able to live a double life. On the one hand, he was an imam of a mosque, and one would hope, of course, we don't really know this yet, but one would hope that the mosque didn't realize um, just what he was doing in terms of how he was radicalizing followers. But, um, you know, he was an imam by day or by night. That was his day job. And he was a, um, a radical terrorist uh, the rest of the day or night. And he was uh, described as being unbelievably um, courteous and uh, discreet. And uh, he, you know, was able to hide the fact that he, of what he was planning and plotting and how he was uh, grooming these young men to be his, um, uh, to, to carry out this plot with him to be his co-conspirators. Um, now, what's, he, what's also interesting is that apparently he had been, now he has had numerous contacts with terrorists in the past, and yet he was not on, well, it's cool, you know, there's different reports about how much the, the authorities knew about him, but he was not really on any big uh, terrorist watch list. And he had learned, he was originally, Originally, um, at least 11 years ago, he um, knew, was in bed with, so to speak, uh, Al-Qaeda 
jihadi recruiters. And um, he used their playbook to learn how to recruit people to be his co-conspirators. So now he was doing it, of course, for, the, for ISIS. And ISIS has taken responsibility for these attacks. And he was a very charming man. He was described to be too polite, actually, by one of the people who um, grew up with uh, the older members of the cell that he managed to radicalize. And, you know, he was seen as, as really polite, but at least one person saw him as, you know, recognized that this was a little too polite. Of course, he didn't apparently tell anybody about this, but, you know, what do you do if someone is an imam? Uh, do you tell the authorities? I mean, this is a person who has been given credibility. And that's one of the things that I'm really, um, one of the points that I want to make, one of the calls to action is how mosques, really need to be, um, to double down on their screening processes in, so that they can weed out people who are, um, who are wolves in sheep cloth sheep's clothing, <laughs> lone wolves, terrorist wolves, who um, seek this position. I and mean, it's kind of like a teacher, um, you know, a pedophile, seeking a position as a teacher or a Boy Scout leader or something, places where uh, they're going to have access to a lot of sheep, you know, a wolf having access to a lot of sheep or hens or <laughs> uh, people who they're going to use for their own um, malicious means. And um, so there has to be more, more careful screening. And this, I'll explain how this is particularly the case. His, uh, this imam illustrates this incredibly well. So, um, so this man who had known um, this imam was saying that he didn't trust him because um, you, he couldn't get a sense of who he was. Now, um, he had a book when they went through the rubble of this house that exploded, that he exploded accidentally, they found a book belonging to him that was inscribed Soldier of the Islamic State in the Land of Andalusia. So, um, now one of the ways that he slipped through the cracks, that this imam, Mr. Asadi, slipped through the cracks was because of this, uh, the politics in Spain and the lack of communication between uh, the main national um, um, organizations of Spain, you know, the, the um, authorities in Spain, and the Catalan regional law enforcement uh, and the judiciary. Because Catalan apparently has been trying to um, separate themselves from the main part of Spain. And so there's this, uh, you know, there's, there have been this, these arguments or these, you know, um, they haven't been as close as in terms of informing each other what's going on. So this Mr. Asadi, the imam, was um, trained to keep a low profile, and he did, that he was once, except for, once having been convicted of drug trafficking. And, um, and, and yet, and, and you know, see, there are all these different conflicting reports. He supposedly was known to the Spanish judicial and counterterrorism authorities for at least 10 years. And he was convicted in 
2010 of drug trafficking. And, um, but they knew that he had contacts dating back a decade ago, like with these uh, Al-Qaeda jihadist recruiters. recruiters. And, um, and these contacts also, when he was put into prison with, because of this drug bust, <laughs> Um, he met, lo and behold, he met people who were involved with the Madrid train bombings, where there were more than 190 people um, killed, and there were hundreds wounded. And, um, but all of these records, you know, whatever was known about him, um, was not shared with enough people. And... Um, and particularly, the, you know, his friendship in prison with one of the people who was a leader of um, the Madrid bombing. His name was Rakid Aglif. He was known as El Caneo, the rabbit. He was serving 18 years for the Madrid bombings. And so during the four years that um, the imam was in prison, he became friends with uh, the rabbit. And he was radicalized. And when he got out, then that was his plan to um, commit a terror attack of his own. Now, Mr. Asadi, the imam, was born in Morocco in around 1970 in a small village near Tangiers. And he, um, he was, uh, at the time of the, um, well, the latest job that he had before he was plotting the attack, was with a mosque in Ripoll, and that's where most of the people were from, who he then recruited to join the terrorist cell. Now, he had told them when he worked there uh, at the mosque that he was married and he had nine sons, so we don't know if that's really true or not. But anyhow, he quit abruptly at the end of June of this year, and um, you know, probably so that he could spend more time paying attention to uh, to his plot and getting ready for that. Now, in 2006, though, you know, we're finding out as the investigation is going on more and more, there are reports surfacing where um, his name did his name surfaced, and yet, yet. Um, they did not obviously watch him carefully enough, and yet he was able to get a job as an imam. I mean, you know, if you would think that not only should the names of people on the watch list be um, circulated to the police and, and officials in various places in, in, um, in a country, you know, where the person is known to reside, uh, but also to mosques because um, that would be the likeliest place where the person would, maybe not, you know, kind of not necessarily expecting him to be an imam, but at least expecting him to attend these mosques. And yet um, he was able to, to go undetected long enough to be able to uh, contribute to this, well, to organize this terrorist cell, which then committed these attacks. So in 2006, they're not saying that his name surfaced um, in a case against a group of men who were accused of recruiting people to fight in Iraq. 
and um, at least one of those men also had helped conspirators involved in the 2004 Madrid team train bombings uh, to escape. And then, and so at that time in 2006, when they were looking at these accused recruiters, there was one Mohammed Mirbet Fazi, who where they found uh, documents in his home relating to uh, the man who became the Imam Abdel Baki Asadi, and so they looked into that, but then they ultimately dismissed it. They didn't think it was important. And at that time, uh, that's 2006, and at that time, that was before he had met um, El Caneo, the rabbit, the man who was serving 18 years for the Madrid bombings, and before he met him in jail. So now what happened was, again, here, this is, you know, it's like the same pattern. So now when Mr. Asadi was released from jail, um, in 2014, uh, he was originally, he was ordered to be, and his expulsion was ordered, an expulsion from, from Spain was ordered um, for when he would be released. And then in 2015, this order was overturned by a judge who um, must be kind of... Uh, kicking himself or ashamed or um, now, but this judge decided that Mr. Asadi had shown employment, uh, this is a quote, he had shown employment and an effort to integrate. So he was freed and then he sort of dropped from view. But then, and this is where the, uh, the importance of, of Musk's um, judging people, uh, looking into the backgrounds of people who want to become imams comes into play. He went to Spain in 2016. And, um, and you know that this is the area where the, there were terrorists, the cell uh, that carried out the attacks in Paris and Brussels. And um, they this, he went to a town called Vivordi, and he, um, he applied for work as an imam there, but he was rejected because he failed to produce a certificate of good conduct and because some of the people who um, were in charge of deciding who gets to be an imam suspected that he had uh, radical yes, beliefs and um, and so they <laughs> they didn't let him be an imam at their mosque and then um, he went from there to um, to Spain where he um, where he was able to get a job at uh, a mosque in Spain and that's where and that's where um, he was able to recruit people. This is in Ripple. And he apparently had heard, I guess, that the local mosques there were searching for an imam. So he went there, and I guess if they were feeling desperate for an imam, and he came, they didn't really look too carefully into his background. But then he started target targeting young men. And um, what's, what's a little different from some of the other uh, terrorists that we have come across is that these were guys who had jobs, were well assimilated, they spoke uh, Catalan and Spanish, they were, some of them were actually born in Spain, um, 
And, but he was able to find the ones who would be most vulnerable to joining in his cell. And he, again, listened to what Al-Qaeda had said in their playbook, and they told him to focus on young men between the ages of 18 and 21. And uh, the book, the playbook says, because these are men who are pure and less likely to betray the group. Similarly, the playbook says, that you should uh, recruit people who are family members. So, they so this imam recruited four sets among the 12 who were brothers, and they were able to use family ties and peer pressure to make them more loyal. And um, they also, you know, he also looked for people who had any feelings about injustice now, it's, it mentions about injustice being done to women and children in Iraq and Syria, but really the people who are going to be most vulnerable to that are people who have had some injustice in their own life, whether it's, um, uh, you know, being passed over for something uh, or something that happened to someone in their family that they thought was unjust you know, then they'd be able to identify with the injustices done to women and children in Iraq and Syria. And so he knew what he was doing, <laughs> this imam. And it, also he did what they told them. The imam uh, focused on uh, talking to these recruits about honor, justice, freedom, pride, and all kinds of um, values that seem positive. And they gave him, they, he gave them identities as spiritual warriors and, um, and, and made them, taught them how to live double lives just as he was doing. So, and in fact, the families, you now of course, you know, this is still early on in the investigation. Of course, the families are saying um, that they had no, <laughs> no idea. That's what the families always say. Um, I had no idea that he was my son uh, or my brother or my husband uh, was plotting this or was radicalized. Uh, and they, some of them, for some of them, that might be true. But for others, you know, they probably weren't looking carefully enough. Um, but supposedly, these were boys, young men, who weren't smoking, weren't dr uh, drinking. One was studying to be an engineer. They seem to have been taking their lives seriously, and at least some of the mothers <laughs> were proud, if not all of the mothers. So, you know, what this shows is just how, um, how, how one, one person, one terrorist, with, who has been radicalized himself, especially by uh, someone who was strongly um, engaged in a terrorist act before, like the rabbit, uh, how, what an influence he can have and how he knows how to um, recruit people and, and, and brainwash them, essentially. So, so the, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, it's really sad because I think that, that some, at least some of these young men who did become radicalized um, were, 
were, would have were it not for the fact that they came in contact with Mr. Asadi and the fact that he held this position as an imam, I don't think that these people, these young men, would have on their own otherwise grown up to be terrorists. Now, there is um, the, the man who was driving the, car, the van, who, who ran the people down in La Rambla, he apparently, um, when he was uh, caught uh, a few days later, he was wearing a fake suicide vest and he shouted, Allahu Akbar. And then um, one of the other ones, um, Musa Ukabir, who um, was shot and killed by the police after he was involved in the Cambrils attack, the second mowing down attack. He, um, when he had been asked on social media in 2015, there was a social media website, Kiwi, what he would do in his first day as king of the world, he responded, kill the infidels and only spare Muslims who follow the religion. So I guess I can't say that all of them would have been, that none of them had any leanings towards uh, becoming terrorists, but some of them at least wouldn't have. And then, um, then there's another one, Saeed Al-Allah, who um, was also involved in the Cambrils attack and shot by the police. And he left a note in his room apologizing for the harm he was about to cause. So, you know, each of these, I'd love to be able to know the life story of each of these young men and um, see how and why they were able to be radicalized. But I think the most important lesson that we can take from all of this is what I was saying as far as how mosques have to be much more careful in, in screening people who apply for the job of imam. I mean, you'd kind of think that would go without saying, but, um, but there are people like Mr. Asadi who are uh, con artists, who are sociopaths, and who are able to hide this very well. Of course, he was well-trained. I mean, we know now that starting 11 years ago, he was trained by um, Al-Qaeda recruiters, and then he was trained by um, one of the best, uh, or worst, <laughs> Um, people, terrorists, uh, because that was the worst attack that Spain has had, the 2004 Madrid attack that had the most casualties and it was the most uh, dramatic. And um, so he was taught well in his four years in prison, uh, befriending the man, the rabbit, who um, was involved, very much involved in that Madrid attack. So um, what else do we, can we learn? We need, of course, I've talked before in previous podcasts about the radicalization in prison and how there needs to be more uh, attention paid to this. And obviously this is another, this is another example of that. Um, and of course, another uh, similar pattern, another call I'm putting out for there to be more sharing of information and more paying attention to people 
who um, have come to the attention, not just sort of dismissing them, that has happened so and so with the case of so many other terrorists where these people, um, you know, maybe they were on the watch list at, what, at one time and then they fell off the watch list and then they committed a terror attack. And, and just with this Iman, same thing, you know, he had come up at various times um, and yet he was not, I mean, <laughs> Not only wasn't he followed, he was allowed to become an imam. Well, let me go to the letter um, writing portion of the Terrorist Therapist Show. And I do want to tell you again to please um, send me uh, letters, emails, contact me. The two best sites to do that are my website, uh, which is www.terroristtherapist.com. And also on Facebook, if you put in the terrorist therapist, you will come to my terrorist therapist page and please follow uh, that page, like and follow that page. And there's a messenger, message, message me on that page as well uh, with any comments about the show, anything you want to ask, I will try to answer your questions in subsequent shows. So the question, the letter, the um, email today was from Ryan from Queens, New York. And he wrote, hi, terrorist therapist. My family and I were planning a trip to Spain because it seemed like one of the few countries in Europe that was safe. Now, of course, we've seen that even Spain gets attacked. My kids are going back to school and I know that they're going to hear about Spain and the next terror attacks that happen. I'm worried that they're not going to be able to pay attention to their schoolwork because they are feeling sad about the people who were killed, especially the little boy whose picture was shown on TV. And they're worried about more attacks in the US. What can I do? Well, yes, Ryan, <laughs> uh, going back to school this year is a challenge. I mean, with each year, it gets to be more and more of a challenge each year since 9-11 as more terror attacks occur, and especially uh, over the past couple of years where there have been so many attacks, there was the Orlando attack and the San Bernardino attack and so on in the US and then all these attacks in Europe that children are more likely to see. And yes, when there is a child involved in, a, in an attack, like the child who was killed in the Boston Marathon attack and the child in the Spain attack, he was um, in Barcelona and at first they reported him missing. He was with his mother and his mother was injured. And um, from the moment she was injured, she was telling people who came around her, my son, my son, where's my son? And, you know, they tried to find him and eventually they found that he was dead. He had been killed in the attack. So when kids see pictures of little kids uh, on television, on the internet, you know, hear about it on the radio, um, they are even more impacted than, uh, than, than when they see adults. So, um, so what, what I would suggest, so here are some three of some of the best ways to um, deal with the going back to school this year. First of all, and getting them to pay attention to their schoolwork. First of all, the main thing is to get them to talk to you and to ask you any questions they have about anything they hear in the news. You, the best way to do this 
his family dinners, which too many times have gone by the wayside because family members have all these different things to do. But really, that is the time to ask about their day and to uh, hear any questions that they may have about things uh, reported about terrorism in the news. You need to talk about it at whatever psychological age and actual chronological age they are. In other words, the older they are, the more details they may be interested in, like why did these young men follow this imam? How did they, you know, why did they get to be to believe these things? How does somebody get uh, radicalized? Um, or for younger children, just, um, you know, just talking about it in a, in a, a simpler kind of way, but not denying that this happened. Because again, if you deny, oh, there was no attack in Spain, um, then your children will have more problems because they know they can't trust you. Um, also going back to school, there's the problem of getting misinformation, like, um, like, you know, people, it's kind of a combination of ghost stories and the game of telephone because some kids like to scare other kids and they make, you know, they don't really know all the details or even if they do know, they make the details even worse. So uh, just to feel superior and like, you know, to see other kids get scared, you know that that happens. Yes, yes, it's, it's not good. It shouldn't happen, but it does happen. And then, of course, in time for school and in time for the anniversary of 9-11 this year, my book is coming out called Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. And I talk about the kinds of things that I just talked about now. It's, it's a guide uh, for parents uh, on how to talk to your kids about terrorism. I go into great detail. The first half of the book is for parents and teachers, and the second half is a picture book that you can share with your children. So, um, in regard to this terror attack in Spain, just remember it could have been stopped if he had gotten the Belgian job and a mosque in Belgium, but then the attack would have happened in Belgium, so that wouldn't have been any better. Um, if they would have realized that the explosion was part of a terrorist plot, if the parents had paid more attention to their kids who were getting radicalized, if there was better sharing of information, and if there was more attention to the radicalization in prisons, in every country in prisons. Well, that's it for this edition of the Terrorist Therapist Show. Thank you for listening. Um, and again, please go to my website and find more information and check out all the podcasts and the blogs and media uh, interviews and so on at www.terroristtherapist.com. And you'll also be able to buy my book through a website and it will be in stores everywhere, <laughs> wherever books are sold. So thank you again for listening.